We ask you now, Lord, that you'd open the spirit of wisdom and revelation to us. You'd open the word to us. We come to know your son. God, understanding his commissioning in this hour. What he's saying, what the spirit of the Lord is saying to the church right now. So God, I'm asking, would you release revelation on us? We want to understand what it means to be forerunners at the end of the age. We want to understand what it means to be in sync with your plan and your activity in the earth in this unique hour of human history. So God, I pray, rest on us with light. And would you let the word come to bear upon us, Holy Spirit? Let it bear upon our soul and pierce us with truth. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me in your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. We are going to continue in a series that we've been on for the last several weeks. In part five of a series called the Forerunner Mandate. We're talking about what it means to be a people who, not, who are not only prepared for the return of the Lord, but who prepare others, prepare the earth and prepare the people of the earth for the Lord's return. It's clear in the scripture, it's clear that the Lord raises up a company of people who will prepare the way for his activities in the earth. In Amos, he tells us he does nothing except for uh, he reveal it to his uh, servants, the prophets, first. And so there's always, you always see the preparatory activity of God in the earth before he releases his supernatural uh, movings. And so the return of the Lord of the planet is no different. In fact, it's one of the most clear uh, processes, thought processes in scripture, God identifies that he's, ra- he's going to raise up a company of people at the end of the age who will prepare the earth, prepare the earth, the climate, the atmosphere in a spiritual way, and prepare the people in the earth for the coming of the Lord, for the, the second coming of Jesus to the planet. He's not coming without any kind of an envoy that prepares the place for his coming. He is sending forth a prophetic company. All I mean by prophetic is a people who have their uh, heart positioned to hear what the Lord is saying. People that understand what the Lord is saying in that hour, and they ready themselves unto readying others for the Lord's coming. And so Malachi 3, it's it's a verse that we've been looking at, this chapter, we've been looking at these first two verses for the last five weeks. We haven't got past verse two. That's okay. We're not going to go verse by verse through it. But verse one and two, well, really the first, well, the whole chapter. But the first few verses are packed with revelation. And so we want to look again at these verses, and we're going to look at them from a different angle today. But the idea is becoming a forerunner people, a people who prepare themselves and they prepare others for the coming of the Lord, what that looks like. So look at Malachi 3, look at verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So that tells us this, that the Lord is going to send a messenger who will prepare the way for himself as the messenger. The Lord is the messenger of the covenant, and he prepares uh, and and sends forth a, a messenger before he comes to prepare the way for his coming. Because I send my messenger, and he prepares the way before me. 
The Lord whom you seek, he will come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. That's the Lord. The messenger of the covenant is the Lord. He's different from that first messenger. He goes, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 2 is the rude awakening. Because he says, you're seeking him and you delight in him. He goes, but when he comes, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he, he is like a refiner's fire and he's like a launderer's soap. And so he's giving us insight that he is going to send forth a messenger. And I would say that's a messenger company. That's a messenger people. I believe there's an individual messenger and a messenger people who the Lord is going to send forth. And I've got plenty of verses. I'm not going to go through it all. But he's going to send forth at the end of the age to prepare the way for his second coming. Now, Malachi 3 has an initial fulfillment. And as is the case with many prophetic scriptures, they will have a, a, a biblical prophecy many times will have multiple fulfillments. Many times a prophecy doesn't just have one fulfillment, it has multiple fulfillments. And Malachi 3 is one of those, it's one of those prophecies. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a little hint, a little interpretive hint. The way you know that a prophecy has multiple fulfillments, here's one of the ways you can know, is when you see that Old Testament prophecy and it's fulfilled in the New Testament, yet some of the features that the Old Testament prophet that he gave, those features are, say, unfulfilled. Maybe only a portion of that prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament. All of the features have to be fulfilled or else it's not prophecy. If only a portion of the prophecy is fulfilled, those other portions have to also be fulfilled. So that cues you into this, that if you've got a prophecy from the Old Testament, and only, it's only partially fulfilled in the New Testament, then that means it, there, there has to be a future fulfillment or else it's not prophecy. Does that make sense? Malachi 3 is one of those, and here's how we know. He says, when he comes, he's coming as a refiner's fire. Well, Jesus, when he came the first time, he came as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so when he comes, he has to come as a refiner's fire or this verse would not be fulfilled. Well, I can promise you this verse is going to be fulfilled. And Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth in his second coming, he will come as a refiner's fire. Now, Matthew 11, it tells us this. It tells us that the first fulfillment of Malachi 3, the messenger that prepared the way, in Matthew 11, it tells us that that first fulfillment was John the Baptist. Now flip on over to Matthew 11 with me. And this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take a look at John the Baptist as the messenger that prepares the way. Because Jesus says some stunning things about John the Baptist. We have got to get to know John the Baptist. I will, I will go into great detail why we need to go, get to know him in a few moments. But we have got to get to understand who John the Baptist is as this one that's this prophetic fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Here's what we believe. We look at Malachi 3.1 and we see this messenger company. And I believe that's a whosoever will messenger company. The messenger that prepares the way for the Lord's second company, uh, coming, that company of people, that's a whosoever will. Whoever hears the voice of the Lord speaking, he's coming, and then prepares themselves unto preparing others. They are getting into that uh, fulfillment of Malachi 3. And so John the Baptist, he was a specific fulfillment, and then there's a much broader fulfillment coming at the end of the age. We want to look at John the Baptist. So we, at the end of the age, can get a, a picture of how it is that we're supposed to conduct ourselves at the end of the age. Now look at uh, Matthew 11. Look at verse 7. Here's what's happened. John the Baptist is in prison. He has sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Now I've heard it said that, uh, well, what happened was John was depressed. He was in prison. He started losing it a little bit. He just needed a little encouragement right there before he got his head chopped off. I don't believe that's what's going on there. What I believe is happening is this. John knows he's about to depart, so he sends his disciples to go spend a little time with Jesus. 
He wants his disciples to see the miracles. He wants them to see the lame walk. He wants them to see the, the blind seeing so that disciples can, his, John's disciples can make a seamless transition from following him to following Jesus. So John says, go ask him if he's the one. So they go and they get with Jesus for a while. And Jesus goes, hey, tell John what you've seen. And the disciples, undoubtedly, they go back to Jesus. They go, hey, we think he might be the guy. John goes, I'm glad you think that. Yeah, we think he might be the guy. The lamer walking, the blinder seeing. I mean, this is, it's happening. He goes, yeah, I hoped you would know that. So in verse 7, as they're departing, they're going back to Jesus. G, I mean, going back to John. Jesus says, Jesus began to say to the multitudes, verse 7, Matthew 11, concerning John, to the multitudes, he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Talking about John. Were you going out to see a reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? Why did you go out there? That's what he's saying. Why did you go out to the wilderness? Were you going to see a man clothed in soft garments? See, a reed shaken by the wind, that's the picture of one that's moved by the influence of others. A shaken man, a reed shaken by the wind. Is that what you went out there to see? Somebody you thought you could influence and, and cause to tremble before you? Is that what you went out to see? He goes, oh, did you go out to see somebody you thought was going to be regal in his apparel? Did you think you were going to go see someone in soft garments, you know, stately clothing? You thought you were going to go see a rock star. Is that what you went out to see? He goes, but why did you go out? What did you go out to see? Verse 9. What did you go out there for? Did you go out to see a prophet? He goes, yes. And I say to you, he's more than a prophet. More than a prophet. If you're taking notes, I would underline that phrase in your Bible. More than a prophet. When Jesus says about somebody, he's a prophet plus, that is a big deal. More than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He goes, this is the guy that's fulfilled Malachi 3.1 in this generation. Now later on in, in Matthew 17, Jesus said, they, he said, he is Elijah to come, and Elijah is coming. See, Elijah to come was supposed to be the fulfillment of Malachi 3. And, 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 they, and Jesus said about John, he is Elijah, and Elijah is coming. He was, Jesus was pointing to Malachi 3, 1, saying there's multiple fulfillments to this. He said they didn't receive Elijah when he came in John the Baptist. The spirit of Elijah was what was on John the Baptist. That's what the angel told John the Baptist's father. He said he will, he will move in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, I tell you, there's another company coming. I believe, there's a, I believe there is an Elijah coming at the end of the age, and I believe there's an Elijah company coming. And they're going to operate under the spirit of Elijah at the end of the age. I believe it's the Acts 2 company that you see that's moving in power, signs, wonders, and miracles, filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and that group is going to be entrusted with preparing the way for the Lord's return to the earth. <laughs> Powerful. You can get in on that. It's a whosoever will group. And so John the Baptist, he was more than a prophet. And I, I walked around for an hour, probably in the prayer room one day, had my Bible open to Matthew 11, Matthew 11, and I'm walking back and forth saying, more than a prophet? Did you mean to say that? What did you mean, more than a, than a prophet? What did you mean? He's a prophet plus. So I'm sitting there saying it, more than a prophet? Yeah, more than a prophet. More than a prophet? More than a prophet. More than a prophet. He's more. He's more than a prophet. What is that? I felt like the Lord gave me a little clarity on it. I believe he was a prophet, obviously, with a powerful prophetic ministry, with powerful preaching and proclamation. I'm going to go into that in a minute. But I, but I also believe that uh, in addition to him being a preacher with a prophetic message, that he was a message itself. He was the message. 
He, the lifestyle that he lived portrayed the message of the way you're supposed to live uh, when judgment is impending in the earth. And John's lifestyle was a message. And then more than that, he was a prophet, he was a message, and he was a prophetic picture. And I believe that prophetic picture, that talks about those who would be forerunners at the end of the age are supposed to take a cue from John the Baptist's lifestyle and see his message and his lifestyle, and those things are going to be uh, uh, manifest in the generation of forerunners at the end of the age. He was a prophet, he was a message, and he was a prophetic type of a forerunner generation at the end of the age. So I want to move through this. I want to talk about John as a, as a prophet and his preaching ministry. I want to talk about him and his lifestyle. And I want to talk about how he relates to us. How his picture is important to us. And you'll be getting that idea through the entire message. But uh, there's a massive point we need to make at the end. All right, so here's the thing. John and his prophecies, he prophesies the two most, I think, the two most important crit and critical prophetic words to the nation of Israel in their generation, uh, and, and perhaps in the earth until that time. And the two prophecies were this. He gives a prophecy and says, God is coming in the flesh right now. He was the first one that said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that idea was that Messiah was coming on the planet. So he prophesies God is coming in this generation. What a powerful prophecy. That's not like, hey, I just feel like there's somebody in here with a headache. I mean, that's, God is coming as a person in this generation. That's a massive prophecy. And then the second one was, wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. And, and I believe that does apply to eternal judgment, but I believe it specifically applies to the second destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed some 600 years earlier, and John was saying in his generation, not only is Messiah coming, massive judgment is coming, the second uh, destruction of Jerusalem is coming. That was unthinkable for the Jews that lived in the first century. They'd already been through one temple destruction, one destruction of, of Jerusalem. To think that it would happen again was absolutely out of the question. And John is prophesying it, and it happens. Both happen just as he said in their generation. I mean, it, what, I mean, probably the most powerful prophetic ministry the nation of Israel had seen to that point. Only to be topped by Jesus, I believe. And so Luke 3, now let's flip over to Luke 3. Because in Luke 3, what we get is the most uh, comprehensive picture of John's preaching ministry. And I'm going to give it to you in outline form. I'm going to give it to you fast. And Because here's what Luke does for us. Luke identifies in a very broad way, in a summary form, what John actually preached. He's not giving you 100% of John's messages. He's giving you the bullet point, big bullet points that John ministered. And Luke says he came, and Luke 3 says he came preaching a baptism for the remission of sins. A baptism for the remission of sins. That was the overarching idea of John's whole ministry. He brought about a baptism for the remission of sins. Now here's the thing. This is so interesting to me. For the uh, first century Jew who's abiding by the law, the only way you can get your sins remitted is through the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that the law says the only way to get your sins forgiven is through the shedding of blood. They have to you know, uh, shed the blood of a goat or a calf or a bull. And that's how they could get their sins forgiven. John shows up and he's doing a baptism for the remission of sins. And he's saying, you've got to come and flee the wrath to come. You've got to repent and get into this baptism. Now, the idea of baptism wasn't a new idea. 
Because what they would do is this. If, if an individual under Jewish law was ceremonially unclean, if they had uh, some sort of an infection in their skin, if they had some sort of uh, flow or issue of blood, they would have to take a uh, bath. Uh, they called that a mikvah. And that cleansing bath would uh, uh, enable them to get healed of what that thing was, whatever that, that problem in their skin or that, that blood flow was, if they, got, they could get healed of it through that, and then they could be back into uh, the, the religious ceremonies. They could offer um, you know, worship to the Lord. They could bring sin offerings, et cetera. They could, they could be back in the community. But if they had, a, if they had this kind of a, a skin thing or a flow of blood, they had to be outside of the community. And, and the, what the, the uh, remedy for that was seven days out of the community and a, a, a cleansing bath. So John shows up and he says, we all need a bath. He goes, and it's not because we've got a little spot of infection on our skin. He goes, the whole system is possessed with leprosy. The whole system is hemorrhaging. And we need a bath, we need a baptism for the remission of our sins because even our sin offerings aren't being accepted because we are so far away from God. And, and, he, and the idea is this, he is blasting the current structure. He's blasting the current religious structure. He goes, that what you're doing there in the temple and offering the sin offerings, it's not even working. You need to go through this baptism so you can actually get back into fellowship. And the point is, he's pointing to one that's going to come who will be the ultimate sacrifice of sin, and that's the one that they're going to have to believe on. He's shifting everything. So powerful. He's blowing a hole in the religious system. So just the idea that he's doing the baptism is a massive, massive point. That was majorly offensive in itself. So in Luke 3, we find his message. He says, there's a baptism that you have to go through for the remission of your sins. He goes, we are so, we are leprous in our religiosity. We are leprous in our spiritual lives. We don't need just a little, you know, mikvah to get rid of a little leprosy on our hand or a little infection on our hand. We need a baptism just to even get back to where we can get our sins forgiven. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And then he goes and he goes, and here's my message. And he's just, oh, John, you are cool. He's so intense. Verse 7, point 1. Here's my message. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath come? Nice little sultry, somber message. Seeker sensitive, obviously. Point 1 of, here's John. Point 1 of my message. Wrath is coming. We're all acting like a bunch of snakes. We've, our chance is to get out. And that brood of vipers, that, that phrase was specifically directed to those of the religious institution of that day. Specifically directed to the religious leaders. John says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? Yes, wrath is coming. I, and I can, I can kind of feel like John saying it this way. He goes, wrath is coming. It's good that you're here. It's good that you're here. And then in verse 8. So point one is wrath is coming. You've got to repent now. His second point is in verse 8. He goes, bear fruit worthy of repentance. He goes, don't let this baptism simply be something you do that's external. He goes, let this baptism be something that changes you internally. Bear fruit in your life that shows that you've turned back to God. He goes, don't just go through the little ceremonial washing and keep going as if everything is the same as it was before. He goes, let it change the way you live. Bear fruit in your life that shows that you've repented. And I, I am concerned about our altars and our altar calls. And I just wonder if somehow our altar calls have replaced Catholic confessionals. 
You come in and repent and you leave. And there's not really a change until you get pierced in your heart again so you can come in and repent and leave again. And, and John the Baptist's message was, if you're going to get serious with the Lord, show it with your life. Show it with your life. Yeah, amen. Praise the Lord. Third one. Third point. John's messages. Find it in verse 8. He says, don't say to yourself, you have Abraham for your father. He goes, the idea is this. He goes, some of you are thinking, if we were just to put it in, in, in Christian terms, he's like this. Some of you are thinking you've been saved your whole life. And you don't need to really get serious with God. Because you're thinking that you know the religious drill. And, and you're thinking your heritage is going to save you. And see, the Jews, they thought this. We are Jews. There's no way God's going to destroy our nation again. He's not going to destroy our, our religious epicenter again. We are children of Abraham. There's no way God is going to do that again. He goes, don't say to yourself. See there, he goes, I know what you're thinking. He goes, you think you've been around and you know how this goes. He goes, that's not going to work. He goes, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He goes, let me tell you something. There's a whole other agenda coming. He's giving us a hint that the true sons of Abraham will be by faith in just a minute. He goes, don't think your heritage is going to do a thing for you if it's not mixed with faith. I remember one time, I remember I was, uh, I mean, brand new youth pastor. I was probably 20 years old. I had about six kids in my youth group. We were booming. And I, uh, I sat there with, I, I think I had about five kids this one night, and I was preaching on sin. That was my favorite subject for about 10 years. And uh, I looked at these, these two, this brother and the sister in my youth group, and I said, let me tell you something. I mean, I'd preach to them. There'd be four of them, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm preaching. I said, let me tell you something. You can't get to heaven on your parents' coattails. They go, what do you mean by that? I go, you've got to get born again. You're not going to be able to stand before the Lord and tell God, hey, my parents are saved. I should be able to get into heaven. I said, you've got to get born again yourself. I got in trouble for that one. But it's okay. I mean, I, my leader actually said, hey, no, you're exactly right. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Don't say your heritage has, has got it covered for you. You have got to have a relationship with the Lord yourself. Then the fourth point, he goes, and it's almost like a, you don't even understand. The ax is already laid to the root of the tree. And every tree that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown in the fire. See, a tree that has its roots cut off, it'll stand there for quite some time. But it has no life flowing to it. All the life-giving tributaries are severed from that tree. And all that tree is is a monument of what used to be alive. And John the Baptist stands there in front of the religious institution of his day and he goes, there is no life in the tree. The ax is already laid to the root. He goes, everything, God's agenda is shifting right now. You don't even understand it. The ax is laid to the root of the tree. We're all going to have to buy into God's new agenda in just a minute. Messiah is coming. Well, it's such a powerful word. He's saying that with, with Pharisees and Sadducees in front of him. I mean, my goodness. And so the people, they get, they get pierced. And how do you know they get pierced? Because they start to ask, well, what do we need to do, John? What do we need to do? The first group is the, the wealthy asking, what do we need to do, John? In verse 11, he says, if you have two tunics, give them to the poor. And he who doesn't have any food, give him food. And what is this? What is the first specific point? Yeah, I love it. John is a messenger of justice. Jesus is going to come, and, and Isaiah 42 tells us he will bring justice to the nations. And John comes to prepare the way, and what does he do? He's calling them to justice. He goes, take care of the poor. Take care of the hungry. 
first point, take care of the poor, take care of the hungry. And then the tax collectors, they say, well, what do we do? He goes, deal justly without greed. Don't take more than you're supposed to. Do this thing right. And then the military guys, they go, well, what what do we do? He says, act kindly, speak the truth, and be content. He's got the rich people in verse 11. He's got the government guys in verse 13. He's got the military guys in verse 14. And he gives them six points of justice. That the, that's how they're supposed to carry out. And what those are, those are fruits that are worthy of repentance. That show that their lives have changed. He goes, you military guy, when you quit intimidating, when you start acting kindly, when you quit making up false things and arresting people for stuff they didn't do, when you start speaking the truth, and when you quit grumbling and complaining because you don't think you're getting paid enough, listen, you military guy, when you do that, it'll show that you're bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Calling the people of every uh, part of society to living a life in justice, in righteousness. That's what John's doing. He doesn't address the Pharisees because he's told them the ax is laid to the root of their tree. (laughs) He's told them the whole thing is getting ready to change. And then John's final point, his, his final proclamation point that Luke sums up for us, it's in verse 16 and 17. John says this, if you don't remember anything I said, He goes, know this, there's one coming after me. He's far greater than me. He's mighty and he's fiery. And he is going to make a separation. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff or the tares. He's going to thoroughly take all the wheat and he's going to take all the wheat unto himself. And he's going to take all the poison, all the tares, and he's going to burn those up. A Middle Eastern tear was a weed. It was poison. For a crop to be worthwhile to harvest, it had to have a small percentage of tares in it. It couldn't have like over 8% or 10% tares. Otherwise, the whole crop would be ruined with poison. And the thing about a tear was, if you held it to a, right up next to a, a piece of wheat, the untrained eye couldn't tell the two apart. So John says this, he goes, He's coming, he's mighty, he's fiery, and he's going to separate those who are his from those who are not his. Those who are his from those who look like they're his, but they are false. He's going to draw all those who are his unto himself, and he's going to burn up all those who are false with unquenchable fire. Fire that can't be stopped. What a powerful preacher. I mean, those are the main messages of your life. I mean, that is, he's, John is just, he's just at the top of, I mean, he's just at my, the top of my list of coolest preachers ever. Somebody, some of you need to go through the preaching of John the Baptist and the theology that John unpacks because he's actually full, he's, he's rich with new theology and some of you need to go through and study that and develop John the Baptist's theology of God and his, his proclamations. All right, so that's who he was as a prophet and as a preacher. That's who he was. Now, who was he as a prophetic message? As one that was the message. I looked at him and I, and I realized that his lifestyle, he says, wrath is coming. And then his lifestyle becomes... The, the answer to how you're supposed to live. He lives the prescription of how you're supposed to live in light of the coming day of judgment. The day of judgment is just about 40 years out in their generation and John begins to live with conviction, unswerving conviction on several different points and that's what his lifestyle embraces. So I look at John's Life as a message to his generation. What he's saying, he goes, wrath is coming. You've got to repent. You've got to bear fruits worthy of it. And I believe God makes him the message so they can look at him and say, now that's how we're supposed to live. So I want to touch the few points about who he was. What was he as a prophetic message? What was lifestyle? Well, Mark 1.6 says this, that John the Baptist, this is such a crazy thought, but when he comes, he comes eating, what he eats, his diet, is comprised of two things. Say them real loud. 
locusts and honey. Just Let's just take a survey. Anybody ever choked down a locust? Crunched one down? Just in your backyard feeling like John the Baptist one day? No takers. He's collecting bugs. I mean, if you eat them, you have to find them. I don't think he's going to the store and going, I'd like, you know, half a pound of locusts. Sorry? Yeah. Now, give me a full bag, full bag of locusts. Okay. So he's finding them. He's, He's getting them himself. And it says wild honey. Where do you get honey again? Beehives. He's getting beehives and he's dipping bugs in it and eating it. Jesus said, the son of man comes eating and drinking and you call him a glutton. He said, John the Baptist came not eating and drinking and you say he's got a demon. Jesus' description of John the Baptist was a man who didn't eat or drink. <laughs> the guy, my point is this, the guy's whole lifestyle was lived in fasting. I think he was kind of skinny. Like really. <laughs> if that's all you're eating, He's sending a message. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amplified, exaggerated message. But he goes, the prescribed lifestyle is fasting and prayer. He lives in fasting and prayer. And then it says, <laughs> he ate locusts and wild honey. And then it says, and he was wearing camel skin and a leather belt. I thought about that. I was like, something, I don't know. I'm not sure they were selling camel skins as something to wear back then. Either he got the camel and killed it and skinned it, cut a hole in the thing and just draped it over himself. You know, I thought maybe he left the head on there, you know. You never know. He might have gone to the camel skin carpet store and just put one on him. Camel skin and a leather belt. What's he, why are you wearing that? Well, here's why. The highest ranking officials of his day, the highest religious officials, the highest government officials, they showed their status by what they wore. The the higher their office, the more flamboyant their wardrobe. But John is going to later, he's going to tell us, I am of the earth. There's one coming. He's from above. And so I believe this, John, he picks a camel skin to identify himself with the earth as nothing. And his garb shows it, that he doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought. He he thinks of himself completely as a simple man. Camel skin with a leather belt. And while all the the biggest religious leaders of his day, they're wearing incredible gowns and and hats and, and they're embroidered and they've got you know, gold and jewels on him. He, he is arguably, and not even arguably, he is the one operating the highest, highest spiritual office, except for Jesus, the highest spiritual office in the land. He's introducing God's son to the planet and he's wearing the lowliest clothes you can get. He's, I'm of the earth. He's from above. So he's living a lifestyle of fasting and prayer, locusts and wild honey. He's living a lifestyle of simplicity. Thirdly, he's living a lifestyle of meekness. Turn over, you got to see this. Turn over to John 1. How are we doing? Doing okay? John 1, verse 29. This got me. Just set it up for you. If you remember, John's mom, her name was Elizabeth. Jesus' mom, her name was Mary. They were cousins. Elizabeth gets pregnant six months before Mary, and Mary goes and spends three months at Elizabeth's house. They live about 50 miles apart, but they've got a tender and close relationship. And they're, they're clearly uh, intimate as cousins. Mary stays at her house, at Elizabeth's house, three months. She leaves, goes back to her hometown, and then Elizabeth gives birth. So John is a second cousin of Jesus. 
His mom is close to Jesus' mom. And though they lived 50 miles apart, which would have been pretty far in that day, annually they're going to Jerusalem for the feasts once or twice a year. So undoubtedly, Elizabeth and Mary over the next 30 years are having multiple interactions because they have an intimate, tender, close relationship. They understand both of them that something supernatural has happened to them both, and that's why they're both with child, you know, when, when they're carrying their babies. So undoubtedly, the, the second cousins, at the very least, they knew uh, each other a little bit, but I think that John and Jesus probably knew each other a lot. So John 1, verse 29, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, obviously, this is, Jesus is baptizing. I'm sorry, John is baptizing. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Well, John, I, th- I thought he was six months younger than you. He goes, he was before me. He was pre-incarnate. 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. Verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have testified that this is the Son of God. It's clear from this text that John was having encounters with, with the, the Father. He was having prophetic encounters because he was telling his guys, There's a guy coming after, and he is preferred before me because he's from before. <laughs> he's God. And there's a guy that's coming whose sandals I am not worthy to loosen. And John's prophesying out of these encounters that he'd been having with God. And John said this, he said, I came to baptize. And the idea is because I was told if I'll start baptizing, this guy that's supposed to come, who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit, he was going to be revealed through my baptism. And the one told me, the one that sent me, and the Bible says that John was a man sent from God, the one sent John, who's God, God sends John, and that one, God tells John, he says, listen, whomever you see the Holy Spirit land on, he's the one. He's the one. So you imagine the day, there's John, he's baptizing. He's been baptizing people for a while. He's watching to see anybody. Is the Holy Spirit landing on anybody? And there's that day, John looks up, Jesus, his second cousin, is walking up. This text tells us that as soon as he looked up, he saw the Holy Spirit land on Jesus. Another text tells us that when he baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and landed on him. Well, which one was it? Did he land on him when he was walking up or when he baptized him? Well, it's both. Jesus comes walking up. The Holy Spirit lands on him. John goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world In his mind, he's going, it's my second cousin. It's my little brother cousin. I mean, in his mind, he's probably thinking, the poetic justice of this is incredible. Because God is, he's raising up my little, no, my little brother cousin is God. I always knew that kid was good at those games. I mean, how in the world he won every time? The poetic justice of it. He looks at the guy that's younger than him. That's, you know, it's lesser than him. He says, he's the Lamb of God. He is preferred before me. Because he is from before me. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is, he goes, I testify. This one, that's the Son of God. Can you imagine how meek and broken John had to be? He didn't care who the guy was, not even his little cousin. John's meekness is incredible. He goes over and tells us in John 3 and verse 30, he says, he has to increase because I have to decrease. He's going to increase. 
I am going to decrease. So he's fasting and in prayer. He's living simply. He's fully meek. And the thing about John that I thought was so incredible is he's fully bold. Fully meek and fully bold all at the same time. He looks Pharisees and Sadducees in the eye and he calls them brood of vipers. But he, I don't think he's depicting, I mean, when you see the depictions of John in the movie, his hair is like out to here. And he's got that little wild look in his eye. He's like, brood of vipers. You know, it's just kind of like, whoa. John was totally clear. He was really clear. I don't think he just got nutso and started prophesying like a wild man. I think he was totally clear, totally meek. And in his meekness, he was able to look right into the eyes of those in the religious institution of his day and say, you're a brood of vipers. You're a brood of vipers. I'm not exaggerating. You are all acting like a bunch of snakes. You have to repent. The most politically incorrect thing he could say. In their eye, staring them down, he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. In fact, it says to him, it says about him that he, uh, he calls out Herod because Herod has his brother Philip's wife. So he calls him out. But it doesn't doesn't say he just called him out for his brother Philip's wife. He says he calls him out for all of his evils that he did. He calls out the king and deals with him for all of his sins. In complete boldness and in complete meekness. Tuck this away somewhere, but I believe this. The forerunner messengers at the end of the age, they're going to operate in meekness at the highest level and boldness at the highest level. And we have barely seen that combination in the earth. Fasting, prayer, simplicity, meekness, boldness, and finally, intimacy. This is his lifestyle. It's a picture of his lifestyle. I'm going to land. Just hang with me. Just give me five more minutes. I'm going to land this real good for you. But don't check out just because we hit the, you know, timer mark. John 3. Flip over there for a moment. John 3 is so good. Verse 20. This is the other... Amazing facet of John's lifestyle. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He goes, he is the bridegroom. He has the bride. He goes, I get to hear him. He goes, and when I hear, just when I hear him, I rejoice. He goes, and my joy is absolutely full. John the Baptist was a man operating at joy at the highest human level you can. He was full of joy. And so the the, the character trait is this. He's got a revelation of Jesus as the bridegroom, as the father who would send his son to redeem the world out of love. He understands the bridegroom and his burning passion for humankind. He's got a revelation of intimacy. And as a result, it causes him to explode in joy in his heart. I mean, he has got the package Fasting, prayer, simplicity, meekness, boldness, intimacy, joy. This is his lifestyle. Why is he living like that? Because he's showing his generation as a message. This is how you live when judgment is on the horizon and when God in the flesh is coming in your day. All right, lastly, he's a prophet, he's a message, and he's a picture for us. He's a picture for us. I believe forerunners at the end of the age, and that's you and I, that's the whosoever will company that agrees that the Lord's coming and we've got to prepare the way. He's a picture for us to embrace his messages as they apply and to embrace his lifestyle as they apply, as it applies. But there's, a, there's one massive facet that I want to land for you and just turn back over to John 1. Because it can be easily overlooked, and it's, it's, it's absolutely the cornerstone, I think. John 1, the next day, verse 29, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's first introduction of Jesus was this. He's a lamb. He's a lamb. John understood Jesus was born to die. All of Jesus' disciples were offended in the night that he was revealed as the lamb. John had it down. He understood when he comes in his first coming, he's coming as a lamb. He goes, I love him. My joy is full. He goes, I am rejoicing to hear the voice of the lamb. When John said, he's got to increase, but I've got to decrease, he wasn't saying, I'm going to die and he's going to be li- live and be great. He was saying, we're both going to die, but he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He has to increase in everybody's mind, and I've got to decrease. I'm nothing. He's everything. He goes, behold, the lamb. Everyone was offended in his day when they saw Jesus as the lamb. This lamb led into slaughter, bloodied up, and they were offended at Jesus. Can I tell you something? Forerunners at the end of the age, not only are they going to embrace John's message and proclaim it, not only are they going to embrace John's lifestyle and live it, they are going to have a concept of the knowledge of God just like John had. But instead of saying, behold, he's coming as a lamb, they're going to say, he's coming as a lion. And I love him as a lion. They're going to say, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and reigned. Behold, the lion is coming to tread the nations. The lion is coming to bring vindication. The lion is coming to redeem his bride the call of the forerunner at the end of the age is to love the lion just like john loved the lamb 